Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome to Skylight's online reading series. My name is Eve and I'll be your host for today's event. Skylight Books is an independent bookstore located in the neighborhood of Los Feliz in Los Angeles. Um, you can check out our upcoming events on our podcast page and I'll be putting that in the chat feature. And yeah, thank you for joining us today. We have Eileen Miles and Adam Fitzgerald. Um, say hi in the chat. Uh, I'll be reading their bios. I, Eileen will read from for now and then They'll talk for a few minutes and then we'll do Q&A towards the end. So if you have any questions, you can use the ask a question feature that's at the bottom of our videos. Okay. Adam Fitzgerald lives in New York City and is a professor of creative writing at Rutgers University. And Eileen Miles came to New York from Boston in 1974 to be a poet, subsequently novelist, public talker, and art journalist. A Sagittarius, their 22 books include For Now, Evolution, Afterglow, I Must Be Living Twice, New and Selected Poems, and Chelsea Girls. In 2019, they wrote and directed an 18-minute super eight film, The Trip, a puppet road film. Uh, you can see it on YouTube. Eileen is the recipient of the Guggenheim, a Warhol Creative Capital Arts Writers Grant, four Lambda Book Awards, the Shelley Prize, and a Poetry Award from the Foundation of Contemporary Arts. In 2016, they received a Creative Capital Grant and the Clark Prize for Excellence in Art Writing. In 2019, Miles received a Poetry Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. And in 2020, they got the Bill Whitehead Award for a Lifetime Achievement from the Publishing Triangle. They live in New York and Martha, Texas. Uh, thank you to you two both, and I'll let you take it away. Okay. Hey, how you doing, Eileen? Um, I'm very good. How are you, Adam? I'm doing okay. I'm a, I'm a little nervous, but I'm, I'm excited to jump in and hear. Um, do you want to just maybe start with the beginning of the book? Um, you mean the beginning, beginning? Yeah. I can yeah. do that. Totally. Um, so, so just to, you know, like, so this book, um, is sort of like a recording of a talk. So it's just like, for the first the first 30 pages of the book, I'm kind of on my hind legs standing at Yale giving this talk about writing that was comfortable and uncomfortable. Um, 
So that's that's where we are, even though we're perhaps in Los Angeles or perhaps in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think last year I got the beautiful bound versions Yale published of Patty Smith and Nausgaard giving this talk. I sat in a chair in my apartment and I took a look at each of them. And at least as far as the beginnings, both of them sounded like themselves. And I thought, well, I can certainly do that. When I received the invitation to give this talk, I think it was the summer before last, or maybe that spring, I was given a date and a fee. And I kind of put it at the back of my mind as something nice it would happen the following September, or October, and then in August, I got in touch with Michael because I hadn't heard anything, but it turns out that's because I had the wrong year. And I figure I can start with that. And I'll return to it now and again. Um, 2018's talk would have been different and 2019. This is so weird to talk about 2019. It was like the last normal year. And I think it's 2019 has been a chaotic and exceptionally, exceptionally beautiful year, right? crowded with incident horrible and time itself had a kind of optic quality full of great and awful things to see and the year has been busy getting copied that way being memorable and these are the things i'm always feeding into my purpose which is to write and maybe to get this part over with right away because i need an alibi i have a very definite feeling that i am simply living and how would that be possible if you also had a kind of ambition and fewer and fewer concrete plans as you moved out of childhood waiting to discharge it. Alibi, of course, implies a kind of elsewhere. And as you translate it into many languages, it remains alibi. What's the word for alibi in Czech? It's alibi. I have been arming myself with philosophies for years that support the notion that the point is to be here, to be present, which I think is the truly hard part, yet I keep coming back to it. It's undeniably true. And writing it turns out is the easiest way to copy that feeling. I have been doing it for years. I would like to be here. I think I'm here. And the more I write, the more you read it, the more it's simply a fact. So that's pretty much done. And now I'm living here. Um, I'd like to read this. Let's get the landlady in too. Oh, that's, second, that's what I'm waiting for. Good. Yeah, she's the finale. The second detail pertaining to the invite I received to give this talk is that I have been living in an apartment in New York for 42 years. So that's where most of my life has occurred. My living, my thinking, my copying. It's one of those East Village rent stabilized apartments and my building had just been sold in 2017 for the umpteenth time. And pretty soon after my lease was up, I guess I probably in June and the new landlady totally took her time getting the new lease to me, actually all of us, which of course spelt danger. And finally I get an email from her, my landlady, Elaine Moosey, saying she wanted to meet each one of us to hand us our leases. And I thought, well, that's sweet. And a few weeks later, she's standing right there in my apartment. She's a conservative looking woman. I bet about 10 years younger than me. And as soon as she got inside here, apartment 3C, she goes, I'll give you 75,000 to leave. That's a visitor, right? I chuckled and rejected her offer. She went on to say that she knows that as well as living here in the small, very inexpensive apartment, I also have a house in Marfa, Texas, which is not illegal, but a fact, and that she, Elaine Moosey, knows it. I'm being watched. That was the feeling I got. And then she asked me what I do, and I said, I'm a writer. I didn't say poet, which was interesting. I generally do say that because it is far more perverse. People generally don't know what a poet does. But in the moment with my landlady, I also grabbed a fat book of poetry out of a brown box sitting right there next to the tub. I flashed it, even thinking maybe it would be nice to give her one. 
also wondering if there was anything incriminating in it. And she looked right through the two of us, my book and I, and then she said, smiling, wouldn't you rather write in Texas? Um, so I just love this opening so much. And I'm just curious, um, first of all, um, were you worried about putting, um, is, is, first of all, is Elaine Mosey's name Elaine Mosey? And, no. and, and at what point did you decide to really go for it in this writing? You know, you, you had this commission. If I got the timeline right here, you, you knew you were going to be giving this kind of talk for at Yale that it's given if I in for other writers who are receiving an award correct mm -hmm, it's like right. a ceremony yeah and, yeah I'm and at what point teacher. do you think you know what I'm I'm going to go into my legal troubles I'm going to go for it I'm going to talk about it I'm just going to kind of put this on the canvas uh, and and, yeah. and I'm curious what anxieties you know I, I could imagine you kind of going there fearlessly or kind of tossing it over I don't know which well I mean that's the the thing about writing as we know is that often i mean like you're like should i say this do i say this and i think usually the best call is to say it and then kind of mop up later and i don't even mean put it out in the world but but pretty much the writing part just gets to have a life and then you decide later what's appropriate or not but the thing that was really weird was that um and i, I think i probably do say this in the book it was so strange i i think I'm not sure. They were very close. I can't remember if I got the eviction notice and then the next day the Yale invitation came and it was so weird because I got the, evic the eviction notice. I called a lawyer and I said, you know, I've got, you know, and he was like, okay, I will take it on. And I said, how much could that cost? And he quoted a sum for me. And then I was like, whoa, okay. I mean, if it went to court, it would cost that much. And the next day Yale invites me to come and talk and they offered me that much. And it was like, I was like, okay, this is a really very funny universe, you know, like, why is it doing? So these things were really roped in together. And also, you know, this, I feel, uh, I think around class issues and, and any number of issues, I think just the the downloading of, of me pontificating about writing is and why I'm a, I mean, I've been a writer in nothing but for, you know, 40 plus years, but it still feels very pretentious. So what was great was to have this kind of beautiful, um, ineffable object, which was my home, fleeing. And so I could, the, the panic of following that meant that I could then talk about writing in a way that was comfortable, weirdly. Yeah, I, you know, reading this book and rereading it for tonight, I just, it's such a piece, it's such an ars poetica, I think about kind of how you write and, and what are the kind of tricks of your trade that you've invented, but it's also such a tribute to your space. Mm -hmm. that you're embedded in yeah and 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 i feel like that i i knew you when you were kind of working on this talk and revising it and i knew and you put it into the piece but i don't even know if you put in as much as you were thinking about really like whether to go or stay like you, you just you couldn't right. really decide what to do with the apartment and and it seems like that energy came really uh, outside of just the lawsuit that energy mm -hmm. of whether you were ready to leave this space mm -hmm. um it seems like it's all across it and um, and, and, and then the funny thing is here you are, you've been giving a zoom tour from, I'm assuming your apartment most of the time or some of the most, time, most or of the what time is which is, yeah, another layer. I mean, there's, there's never been the one where I actually, she walked in that door, you know, and I picked up, but it's such a, you know, I, I, 
walk my my body through it as I as I do the tour. It's so funny. I mean, by now it's it's. I'm glad it's. I'm glad this is the end of it. You know, but it it was very. I mean, it was kind of um, um, very virtual in this crazy um way. I mean, like we're in such a moment of technology, just like reinventing existence in so many ways, and this felt like just a double flip. You know. And remind me, when did you, I think one of the first events you did over Zoom, you were actually in Marfa, and it was for a museum gig. Was that in April or May, or was that later? That was in the summer. I guess it was at the end of June, and I gave a, um, I gave a, a, a tour of the art in my house in Marfa, which was really fun. Um, because, you know, it, again, it just, you know, people, Zoom is such a thing, and you're, and it's so funny to, you know, it, as a poet, you're just endlessly you know, sitting with your cell phone, reciting a poem in your apartment or your house. There's something, I don't know, it's great and tedious, you know? And so I was so happy to get the idea to kind of get off that practice and to have a completely different one, which was to literally use the space. I mean, I mean, kind of the thing I'm not doing here, um, but to, to enact the space in a way and, and give that give that tour, which is so, I mean, I grew up, I was a teenager in the 60s and and the um you know the Jackie Kennedy tour of the White House was like the most amazing event, you know. And so that was like my private joke that I was doing this kind of presidential tour of my my place in Marva. Um I just just to go back to that moment, you said, you know, you you got the eviction notice either the day before or the day after you got the the invite to Yale. And uh I've you know, I've known I know Ann Lord back poets who have been a long time have kind of been booted from their place um and is that something that you ever thought was in the cards um i know you what you've been there 35 years i think or at least um was that something that had ever occurred to you as a possibility before that before that oh. message showed up oh one million times because there's so many ways to be bad with a new york apartment you know and there were the years where i mean i've had multitude multitudes of landlords so ones that didn't give a shit, ones who were like breathing down my throat and times when I was just gone for ages and, you know, people were living here. And, you know, I mean, like, I don't even I don't think my landlord is watching at this moment. But I mean, like, it's so I did many bad things, but there was always little things. I mean, like little superstitious, magical things I did so that I was always legal, you know, and always voted here and always, you know, but I think the the thing you were saying earlier about the stay or go, I mean, I just feel like. It's so interesting because I think that's like, that's like mortality, right? I mean, it's just sort of, it's so weird. Yes, it's about my apartment, but it's sort of like, especially when you've lived in an apartment as long as I've lived in an apartment, it's like my body. It's like time. It's like, you know, it just, it's like the young me is here. The older me is here. The older still me is here. So this, you know, so it's just, you know, the, the question of staying and going is, is kind of, I mean, it's so it's, 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 it was easy to wrap up with the writing and even, you know, the decision, you know, and the anxiety that it, it filled me with um, are so um, part and parcel with how, with why I write and how I write, you know, because I'm excited to be here. I'm scared to be here. I'm ready to go. I'm not ready to go. You know, I mean, so they're all, you know, the, the apartment just sort of stands in for this husk that is Eileen, you know. And, and I think kind of pursuing that line of thought, the kind of the mortality and body part of it, 
you know, what's so amazing about this book and like you do in your other books, but this is like a shorter space. So I feel like it, it concentrates some of the moves that we kind of, we, we feel the kind of, you know, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, the lick or the grain of the text more. You put a bunch of texts that are outside of this project. That's not true, but a lot mm -hmm. of outside texts into the book. Right. And not just you selling your art archives, which is one of, I think, you know, the first time I heard you read that, I, I kind of broke down in tears and that's not something I'm able to do a lot. But then also your, your kind of, your whole obsession with your box, of course, which yeah. is this sacred object in Eileen Lore, where so many of your, your notebooks, your poems, your drafts, your, uh, um, I know I'm, I know I'm giving it short shrift, but a lot of really important things for you in your own personal archive are kind of in a sense, permanently missing or somewhere somewhere out there in this box. That's there also weird. In some other location, yes. That's right. right. And so I, I guess, I guess, um, and then, you know, I don't know what made me think about this, but when you just talked about the apartment as being about like your mortality, you, you have these intense, as you always do transitions, but on page 50 and 51, um, since we're kind of like doing study hall session here, at the bottom of 50, you talk about the binders from the box and you know, it's a kind of death, like me sitting in my office at school, thinking preserved, preserved, which is such an amazing hiccup. And then in 51, at the bottom of page 51, um, you're talking about having your poems translated. And then you suddenly give us this interjection without commentary. I read Moira's book where Mary Wollstonecraft's placenta did not come down. So the doctor stuck his dirty hand inside and pulled it out and that's how she died it feels relevant here and then you never comment and that's that that kind of just stays there um mm -hmm. and uh so if you don't i just want to kind of slow down with some of the transitions in the book um right right uh is, is that a little bit of what you're talking about like the the apartment is a it was about kind of like i don't know mortality or death i mean you didn't were you i don't think you were sick or dealing anything specifically um while you were writing this, but I'm just curious, like how all this started, this, this stuff started to surface. Well, I mean, it's, it's not, I, it's not unlike the box in which the, um, you know, like, I mean, and li literally this box that we're talking about it, it was kind of like a mini archive because what it was, was just a, a collection of all my poems that before there were computers, it was originals. You know, and it's like many of them exist in other, you know, in books and in magazines and stuff. But it was before there were any such, I mean, I guess there were, you know, before there were any books, there was this little archive. And um, and so it just like, and so it has a relationship. I mean, like the, the piece that I wrote about archives was about the fact that not only am I giving this talk at Yale, but they have bought, they have bought my archive. They bought basically all my notebooks, all my napkins, all my videos, all my, you know, like they have, they have the proof that I exist, you know, and and stuff. And weirdly at that time, at that same moment, pretty much I lose my own version of it, you know? So it's sort of like, there's a little archive in a big archive and, and um, I don't know. I, I guess I'm, I, when I think about the, the, I mean, I know at any, I mean, like at the point, at the points where I thought, fuck it, I'll leave the apartment. You know, I'll take a bite. I'll leave. I'll go. I don't need this. And it's true. I do not need it. I'll be fine. You know? And it's just like, and, and kind of 
one doesn't, you know, like one, you know, as long as one is still breathing, one doesn't need this or that or this or that, you know, so that it's sort of like the two, the two, I'm not sure I'm making such a profound, but, but the two were so intrinsically related because they were both about, I think what the big question starts to be, I think in life or in a, and as a writer too, because it's editing, it's savage editing. It's like, how much can I do without, you know, what is necessary, you know? And I think the only thing that's necessary is to stay alive and perhaps for a writer to keep writing. You don't need this proof that you made when you were young, that, that you, you exist. And here's how, you know, how good I am at saving all these moments in my writing career, nor do I need this, you know, crazy ass apartment that is so cheap that even I can have a home, you know, I mean, it's sort of like, and yet, you know, I, I think, yeah, yeah. Even though there's a, a, a magical superstition that of course, obviously I'm still sitting here. So I still um, have that, amulet in some weird way you know but you don't i don't need anything you know i mean i feel like if anything if i if this book was any kind of process i i think it was understanding how much how much one can go without and do without except for finally probably themselves and and those they love and and their practice which is invisible and that's mm -hmm. the thing that's funniest about writing it isn't those pieces of paper it's not what yale paid for or what i was saving or you know well, it's just so interesting to me, just from a technical standpoint, I'm, I'm talking about how you kind of tuck these other texts inside, you know, years ago when I was asking you about writing a novel and you were very insistent, non-ironical, you said the way you write a no novel is like you put together any other book or a book of poems. There are these different beads, just kind of them up together and string them along. And mm -hmm. so I, I kind of heard what you were saying, Adam, like, don't think of it as like a separate continuous whole that you know one day you'll just have 300 pages given to you think of it as like as i guess any novelist or nonfiction writer knows just do that same kind of like um scrapping things together and and seeing what sticks um and and that's amazing that you do that so much in this book but the thing i remember when i first heard you read the archives piece and i think you read a version of the box maybe as part of a talk for creative time i could be getting that wrong is that true or something um. like that yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of a. It was kind of a weird pitch for a TV show that was about yes. the box, and so it was kind of performance. I was holding a box and explaining. But but you know both of those pieces, which I think I've heard versions of totally separate, were were so amazing. I remember when you told me that you were putting them both into this little book that's so handsome. I was like, wow, um, you're like you're putting two like two amazing things that could stand by themselves or in a novel or in a book by themselves or like you're putting them all in this little space that you told me you had so much ambivalence about doing because it was kind of an award speech so i guess i'm i, I i'm kind of startled by the the weird like it's it sounds great to kind of paste things together and have it work but um it, it sounded almost like perverse the way that you were kind of willing to steal from things that really could have stood alone, like really well, if that makes sense. Right. Well, I mean, I think part of it, like what you were saying in the beginning, it's like, I think no piece of writing stands alone. Finally, I think it sits right next to all the other things you ever wrote, you know, and that if there were some great narrator, you know, whether it's you or somebody else who could walk through all those pieces and, point to them, you know, um, just the way, you know, we're talking about 
this book coming coming together or me walking through my house and Marf I mean I think the tour is the ultimate the ultimate thing you know and so it's just like they are related you know and what's what what but but I think someplace in there I talk about the only fiction and I feel this very passionately is ease the only fiction is ease because what's you know, it's so funny. It's like the, the the glamour of being a writer, of course, is you meet people and they're like, oh, you're a writer. That's so great. You must have an amazing life. And I do have an amazing life. And they think you must go to beautiful places and you just sit there and write. And I do go to beautiful places and just sit there and write. The only thing they don't get is that it's fucking hell, you know, because it's like anything. It's like you have an easy morning or an easy time writing or a good conversation or you're you know, like it's sort of like all the ways that life can be smooth and suddenly you hit a wall and it's just like, oh, you know, and it's like and you somehow have to either, you know, get rid of that wall or wait for the wall to go away. or And so this I think the the cobbling, I mean, I think one of the things that was really fun about this book was that I felt like I kind of as I suffered through the process of trying to figure out how to finish this book. And it's I mean, it's not such a, it's 80 pages. I mean, on, on type it was like a hundred, but because I gave a talk that was an hour long and that is 7,000 words. And then when it was over, I thought, oh no, I owe them 13,000 more words. And so I kind of dragged the reader through the process of me trying to, you know, so even the things that like you were saying, a standalone piece, like, I mean, the standalone piece, the the funny part about the archive could be like, so it's like, my precious baby, like this really cool piece of writing. And shouldn't that go? I think when you say standalone, you still in a way think, shouldn't it go someplace really good? Not just this talk that you're giving Yale. And I felt yeah, that. That's a, yeah, totally. I totally okay, that's felt what I thought. That. But then, but then, yeah. And then the perversity was finding a way to, I mean, also pieces can have several lives. It's just like, if I give them this piece, it doesn't mean I can't, you know, put it in a novel later in a completely different way. And I think the challenge with these funny pieces, and I think I talk about this in the book too, is like I have a piece that wound up at the beginning of my dog book, and it's about, um, you know, this idea that my dog, I get a, I get a, a letter from my dog's lawyer, and my dog is suing me. It was such a funny piece of writing that I wrote that didn't belong anywhere. And it was just funny. And, and I think that part of the fun of being a writer is just having these crazy ass pieces and then figuring out a book becomes a place. The book becomes the archive to hold the crazy piece. You know, you've got this crazy stand up comedian that said something amazing and you were like, yeah, but where does that character go? And for me, that's part of my definition of form. You know, what kind of room would you build for that, that weirdo that would, then seem like they always belong there, you know, and they wind up being the life of the party and the party is your book, you know. Um, I want to take us to another moment on page 11. There's this really interesting and rich vein where I feel like so many different parts of, of, of what it means to be viewed by a lawyer in New York City come out. Um, and it's like this, this moment where like race and class and gender and queerness and childhood for about a page and a half, they kind of all yeah. sit together. You want me to read that? Yeah, yeah. And if I, I don't know where you you want to start, but maybe maybe at the beat. Uh, what I could say is at the bottom of. Um, yeah. Say it again. I would say the childhood. Yeah, exactly. I want, and then just it ends. Well, you'll. It's just like it's like basically two pages and a and a fragment. Yeah. 
Um, but that was uh, weirdly, we're very in sync, Adam, because I this is one of the pieces I wanted to read. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if everyone has a childhood conducive to becoming an artist, except that childhood is that somehow, the original studio, the time place. You make art sometimes, and they, the people in school, try to make you write. Everybody doesn't like it. I did, though. I didn't think there was anything to it. Writing as a profession, wouldn't you want the world? It's interesting that we got around to this. I had other thoughts in mind, but as a kid, the important fact is that you radically understand your own condition. You know that you don't have to go to work or pay bills and everything's new. So there's an enormously liberated feeling, which certainly abuts on this awesome space, which is writing or art or rolling in the shit of time. Though let me add the singular experience I project onto childhood, the romance I have about dwelling and poor spaciousness from approximately my mid twenties to my mid forties contains a genuine element of risk, but not of condemnation because the lives I collided with when I went out opened capacities and spaces and wider and wider opportunities. If only I continued walking and breathing and picking up the phone. And if I were so broke that the phone was turned off, I could go downstairs to the bodega and call John Ashbury and ask him if he would recommend me for an emergency grant. And because I had such entitlement, I knew about this grant and had written some good poems. I'm standing here right now, whereas some of my neighbors in my building came to New York from other countries, continents, or territories, our colonies, Puerto Rico, and six people lived in the apartment right next door to my one. And the child of that house is now a large man who doesn't leave the block or hardly the building. His name is Steve and a woman on the third floor I love who has been carrying her groceries up the stairs, bump, 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 in a cart for years. We're probably the same age. She came here from South America to get an operation for her son, whereas our government is now pulling such kids out of the hospital and deporting them. And later in college, he was a camp counselor and he wrote some emails to one of the campers after the summer that he got in trouble for. And he actually went to jail and he came back much bigger, jail big, than he was before. Maybe he committed a crime, but I think it was because he was brown and his mother lived her life for him. So I have to acknowledge for myself that I'm living outside of that level of suffering. I wasted time absolutely like I knew I should. Well, I could. The waste was like a frame, an award, an attainment. Literature is waste for sure, but the award was just time itself. Um, is there any way you could, would you, would you mind just reading two more paragraphs? I mean, this, <laughs> no, no. by the way, I love these. I love, I love this section so much and I love the two paragraphs more, but I'll just, it's kind of amazing how it all hangs together. Um, the two par I see the little paragraph, but the next paragraph seems to go on to the next page. Is that what you mean? Um, yeah, you, and you know what, you don't have to, if, if you, you know what, you could stop, um, I mean, if, if you're cool with it, you could stop where it says her bag. I've got them if you need more. Cool. Okay, great. Um, but the award was just time itself. There are writers who have jobs. They probably had children and they had to get up at dawn to write for an hour, and that's not me. Queerness is a factor. Even in childhood, you're a bit of a fraud. And later, you just want to put all that time back. If I had that little time, like the ones who write in the morning, I don't know what I would have said. And a lot of those people were women. I didn't want kids, and I didn't want a job. I knew that if I had either one of those things, I would think about them all of the time. It would set my morning and it would set my night. I would be in its clock, its childhood and its adolescence, its responsibilities. 
I think women are supposed to open their legs to time and let it pass through them. It strikes me that that's what choice is all about. If a man chooses to put sperm inside of a woman, inside of her, it must stay. It's like she's Tupperware. The problem is she's visible. And there are women who want to have babies, and I feel awe for the women who make that choice. In fact, I've been overwhelmed by the generosity of women lately. I was getting on a ferry in July, or I was trying to make a ferry, and I stumbled and fell down, and I managed to get on the ferry nonetheless. But what was amazing was that in the cafe area of the boat where I was triumphantly putting a band Band-Aid on my bruises, my hands were bleeding from falling. And one woman looked at me and said, they have first aid here. Oh, I've got a Band-Aid, I told her. Yeah, I see. I'm just telling you in case you need more. Thank you. It was nice she was following me with her eyes. In a few minutes, I realized I would really like an ibuprofen. And I asked her if she had one. And she said, I haven't. I don't. But she really looked at me. And another woman right over there said, I've got one. And she started digging in her bag. And 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 then the first woman said, no, I do, I do, I do. And then she handed a couple to me happily. And the other woman said, patting her bad bag, I've got them if you need more. Yeah. So, I mean, rereading the book, I just thought those two and a half pages were like almost the most amazing two and a half pages in the book. And and not in it, not in any easy way, because I think they're I think they're actually much more uneasy to read than they let on. And and they kind of it's amazing to me how. You know, sometimes when I get caught in in my own soundbite of like, you know, we are intersectional, we have these multiple identities. I think the the image of intersectionality in my very literalist mind sometimes is like, oh, all the different parts of myself, they come together to the same point, whether for bad or good or ill or whatever. And um, I can't speak for anyone else, but as like as a, as a queer person, as a white person, you know, I feel like so many of my identities are very, they might affect each other, but they're very dissociated or they're very disconnected from each other. And what's amazing in this section is how these, I mean, a part of me wants to say like the moment about childhood and the moment about Ashbury and the moment about Steve and the moment about queerness and being a fraud. And then this other moment that feels to me like kind of a passage about kind of rape culture, but also how women see each other in these small ways of like being able to just, you don't need to say what's going on. There's this like, this uh, immediate mutual aid that exists between, hey, the body, the body needs to be mm-hmm. cared for. And someone's like, mm-hmm. I've got you, you know, right, right. You, you let all of those moments kind of exist back to back without trying to force them to talk to each other. And, and maybe they talk to each other and maybe they mm-hmm. don't. And so I, I just want to like honor that because I think it's beautiful uh, and painful. But I, I guess the question I have um, you know, I'm teaching a class at Rutgers on nonfiction, and we, we look at work of yours and Frank Wilderson and Claudia Rankin and, and many other people. But um, I'm just curious how when you take that moment where you're thinking about the apartment and you're suddenly thinking about Steve, who um, is a person of color, he lives in the building or he no longer lives in the building and um you know, he's part of the story of mass incarceration that touches your life and in this book. And and, and like many, there are many characters in this book that kind of come in and out, but they, they matter, they count. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the book kind of acknowledges that. I guess I'm just wondering how you surf all of these different moments. And it particularly in that moment, like, how do you know, and I don't mean this rhetorically at all, 
how do you know at that moment, like, okay, do I show up here? Am I a feminist writing that moment? Am I a white person writing that moment? Am I uh, uh, someone who's just been a poor poet their whole life that literally is trying to be evicted? Mm -hmm. Or am I kind of now a well-known poet whose archives are being taken by Yale? And mm -hmm. I guess I want to avoid the fact that, oh, well, they all exist and they all just exist equally. Um, so yeah, if, if any of that makes sense, I'm, I'm curious how you, you linger and move into that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I will say that one of the things I was experiencing when I was writing that part was an awareness of how many kinds of seeing there are, you know, and it's sort of like, as I was, I mean, as I was rhapsodizing about, you know, time and wasting time and how great it was and all that, I, I couldn't help seeing myself. You know, and I and I think, you know, I saw myself in my whiteness. I saw myself in my privilege. And I always, you know, I come from a working class background. I I've spent a lot of time thinking of how not privileged I am. And yet, you know, it's just like as I it's almost like as the energy rises and you get really excited, if you're lucky, you'll start to see, you know, who's getting off at that moment and, and who isn't. And mm -hmm. where this performance, where this, because it's all about energy, you know, it's all about feeling energy rising and you're writing it. And I, I feel like I never want to be so drunk on my own writing or my own feeling that I don't watch myself too at some point, you know, and it's in a way that's part of how you drive the car is that, that you mm -hmm. just, you know, you, you get lost and then you suddenly realize, no, wait a second, stop listening to that audio book. You know, you, you don't want to hit people you know and stuff and i you know and suddenly i realized it's like yes there was this huge family living next door and they're not there then it wound up being this one guy to, you know i just suddenly realized that though this is deeply permanent my living here it just still i i you know i i'm making this movie about it you know and other i and, and, you know, and again, I don't know. I mean, it's just like every, I don't know what it's like inside of anybody else. And I can't say that they're not making this movie out of it, too. But they're not certainly not making it in the same way that it's a cultural product that they sell, um, you know. And and then I think that the part about being on the boat, I think there's just a part about storytelling and that. Um, Sometimes I get addicted to a story and there was something I, I just, you know, my therapist and I have talked much about this incident of trying to get on a ferry and um, being in a rush and stumbling and feeling vulnerable and all that, you know, all that that carried and then getting on the boat and being seen by women and, and even, you know, and it just like being female, but maybe not being female and all those things coming together at that moment, you know? And it's just like, I keep telling that story. I've written that story like three times in three different settings. And it's just like, I think there's something really wonderful about a story that you don't know why it's so important and you keep telling it and it, it fits everywhere because it's like the joint, you know? And it's just like, sometimes I don't understand the joint, but I know when I'm in it and I know when um, it's just like, bring the fucking joint in again because it it just works here and it makes it makes this seeing this seeing be different again you know and it brings another you know a layer another layer which is so exciting to keep adding dimensions to something very simple in a way um i'm so happy to open it up to what other i think it's are we there and after um the questions of folks, but I do have one other quick, quick, quick little question for you. Um, 
you know, and it's just more of a materialistic language thing. Sorry, I, I kind of just opened a portal. <laughs> and, okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but, but, you know, I've always wondered, you know, one of the things I'm obsessed with about your prose writing, Eileen, is you, you have this kind of, and I don't know whether it's like a tickle or a chuckle, but it's this weird way in which your, your, your prose writing feels to me like sometimes it's like the verbal equivalent of a stutter. And because nothing's by accident and nothing comes easy, you know, you like that moment in, in the passage where there's the generosity of women and it's the ibuprofen and the Tupperware and, and the band aid, um, you write, um, then the, fr you write, and this is all one Pythonic long sentence said, I've got one. And she started digging her bag. And then the first one said, no, I do. So far, there's been no punctuation comma. I do. I do. And she handed a couple to me, all of that without punctuation. It's this amazing way where you you're not just trying to write vernacular as a as a diction or a word choice, but it, it's this kind of style of syntax and and a style against a certain kind of punctuation. And I've always been obsessed with that little aspect of your work, and I, I don't know how how conscious and um, obsessed with it you are too. Mm -hmm. um, but you do it throughout the book. All the yeah, time. well, it's sort of it's sort of the the drumbeat, you know. It's sort of like the thing is, if you don't use punctuation in a in a conventional way, you got to use something. And so for me, I mean, my favorite part in all that I read is the woman patting her bag and going, "I've got them in here." Patting her bag, going, "I do, I do, I do." You know, it's like it's sort of like that closes it in a way that no punctuation can do because you're both in the text and in the world at that moment because we know people physically endorse their statements with rhythm all the time. You know, it's just the absolute, um, you know, it's the rhythm of need and, and necessity and, and seeing, and it's just like, it's an embodiment that is much stronger than language. I think language is just always trying to be that strong, I think. Mm -hmm. Great. All right. Let's, let's Thanks. hear what folks have to say. Back. <laughs> um, so, Tony's asking, I wonder if you could talk more about uh, what you said initially when you said my copying. Um, when you talked about your apartment in New York City and your place for my living, my thinking, my copying. Oh, right, right. I mean, there's a whole thing in this in this book about that, but I think that, um, I mean, in, in a very basic part of writing practice for me, I mean, I think that, you know, I, I you know, I have this art school wannabe thing where, where you know, I, I did sort of go for a, um, you know, like an interview at Mass Art, uh, art school in Boston. And I remember like seeing a, you know, a nude posing and just sitting there drawing and stuff. And I just, you know, part of the way I understand, you know, growing up, it just like, it's sort of like I drew all the time. I was just copying things all the time. And at some point when I started to be a writer, I wanted to, I wanted to, pra before I knew I had a practice, I wanted to practice. And I didn't know how you did that. And so workshops, they would sometimes, you know, tell us to go into cafes and listen to people talk and just take down language. And there were exercises that were about listening to text and appropriating. And, um, and you know, and I just dragged it, you know, like I would just come home and open the refrigerator and just say what was in there, you know, and just describe it, you know, because or, or being on a train and looking out the window and just narrating. And I just think it's a very primary exercise of writing and I think I warm up when I'm when I sit down to if I'm if, even if I know what I'm working on when I sit down at my computer 
I often start with where I am and I, you know, and I let sounds come in and I let the room come in and, you know, and it's sort of like, it's kind of a, um, it's kind of the base for perhaps an evacuation that happens in language when you, you, and it's not that you don't continue. I mean, when writing was invented, people were really flipped out about the loss of memory because up until then, all we had was people narrating out loud long things from memory and stuff you know but it's sort of like writing it's it's sort of like copying that text copying that recording that performance you know so i feel like on some level um writing just really is like a recording device and i think i like to i like to visualize it and i and i like to make visual practices for myself and for other writers when i work with them um Zoe asks, how do you relate to attachment and detachment like ghosts in Afterglow? Like like what in Afterglow? Like the ghosts in Afterglow. Oh, well, I think I think um I think I invite the ghosts in, you know. I think I I I think it's it's like it's like influence in writing, you know, you re you read somebody's work and you just feel completely haunted by it you know when you when something or someone in real life when something really fills you I think you can't stop it and you can't block it and you absolutely have to let it happen you know if it's and so I think just to welcome the ghosts and to not be afraid of them and just to let them um take you over you know because they will you know it's like madness you know it's sort of like and, and I have my own cursory experiences with madness you know and it's like if you don't fear it, it'll just pass through you and you'll know something more, you know? And so I think ghosts are for the, for the getting really. You know? Pat um, is asking, could you take an idea from New York city to Marfa and keep the original concept intact without having it be influenced by place? Well, I think that because like New York city, like all places is a fiction. And so once I think one of the things that's good about having a solid base in a place and, for, for me, the thing, part of the thing of living in a, a place or living in a neighborhood for a long time is that it's very solid, you know, it's sort of like it's living, but it's, you know, so I kind of, I mean, I, I wrote a novel called Inferno, which was about becoming a poet. And I wrote it in San Diego about New York. So mm -hmm. it was almost like, because I wasn't in New York, I could write about a New York that I constructed, that I had lived and I had occupied. Um, so I think that, you know, for me, it's, I, I think, cause I think, Poetry is different, though. I just think when you go to a place, the place really inhabits you. And I think you really have to get attuned to that different measure. Mm -hmm. You know, it really it really the soundings of a place. Are real. I mean, New York is so filled and cluttered and rhythmic in these very particular ways where I, you know, I taught in San Diego for five years. I live in L.A. And it just the spaciousness was so different. And I had yeah. to figure out how to be there. But fiction, I think you just you take the place with you, you know. So you, it's 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 um, it's a made up thing. Yeah, going back to the idea of copying, I feel like New York being so dense could maybe facilitate the action of copying more, or maybe not. Yeah, uh, no, there's a lot of stuff, so it's rich. It's a rich copy. You know. Lindsay's asking, so much of your writing is about being in the world with other people. How have the last few months um, and COVID opened up new or shut? down existing writing doors for you? Um, I was really confused at first. I was like, I felt like, I mean, I was in Texas for a lot of the early part of, of COVID and um, um, God, I just felt like, I felt like 
a beginning writer. And I also felt like, you know, I mean, I think more than three decades ago, I stopped drinking and taking drugs, you know, and um, there was an early period of feeling very out of focus, you know, and I wasn't quite sure how to write in that state. And I felt a lot of that in COVID. I mean, I felt like, and then I had to, I just had to give myself permission to write badly. You know, I just thought I need to write. I'm here. That's all I have to do. But I mean, it was, but it was weird because I felt like even though my life is not deeply social and I mean, I have friends in Texas and I go out, but it's just like, it's very different from New York. Mm -hmm. Um, And I see a lot less people though. I see the same people all the time, which is a little different, but, um, but I think I realized I realized that I use encounters with people to to get away from myself and refresh my writing, and I didn't have that. And I think that was part, part of the blur is that I kind of um, absorb people and get grounded, and then can go back to abstracting, you know. And so I mean, it's just like right now I'm in New York, and I'm just you know cherishing every kind of social. I realize that if I don't have one good social encounter a day, I just I get to I get really nuts. Mm. And it's not good for my writing or anything, you know? Um, Kat is asking, hi, um, I've been hanging on this line in the book. Once I tasted time, I never wanted anything else. (laughs) And I think that fits in the part where you're talking about relishing and how great it is to have time. But I'm curious about the idea of watching oneself. When you talk about it, it's almost it almost seems like a muscle one develops to see oneself as a way to see the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I, I have to say, I feel like Gertrude Stein is the person I feel like I've learned aspects of that from more than any other writer because she has, I mean, she says it, she goes, it's sort of like, as she's expounding on her own genius, she says the capacity to listen and speak at the I think was it think and speak or listen and speak at the same time is is the indication of genius to be I think so but I think she was talking about a kind of self-consciousness where you 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 don't um entirely banish into the performance but you're 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 there and you're watching and I mean I think you know obviously I think I mean I like a lot of writers and artists I'm deeply self-conscious and you know, narcissistic and, and all, you know, so it's sort of like, it's a natural practice to be a little too self-absorbed, but weirdly, I think writing is a, is an exercise where you, you use that and then figure out how to lighten up. Mm. You know, I think it's a learned thing. And I think the world of course is the invitation to, to get away from the self, you know, like even when you're writing very personal stuff in a poem or a book, it's sort of like, it does you, I like, I don't write third person per se, but I do describe. And so if you just look out the window and say what's out there, then you you are occupying the third person and you and, and you have, have left your body. So I think it's sort of like, and so I think it refreshes the self, you know, because I think it's like there is, I feel like the self is a very, it's like, it's like the black crayon or it's like a, a, a knife in painting where you're scraping away and, and it's very, it's a very sharp tool, but, but I think you need, um, you know, you need, you need a broader palette than that, or it just gets real. I mean, I know when I'm writing too deeply um, in a self-absorbed way, it's just like, there's no air. Mm. And I think you get the air from the world. Do you ever write in second person? Once, very rarely, once in a, once in a while, but I feel like it feels very arch. You Mm. know, I often recoil from writers who write in the second person. And so I, I, 
don't do. I mean, do I, I move into it briefly, but it's sort of like it's it feels very manipulative. You know, it's like a, a detached way to explore the the self. Um, but well, yeah. it, because you're projecting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Candace is asking. I appreciate your voice and your work. I really love how you talked about people rhythmically punctuating what we say. Queer time is so different. Do you feel like being non-binary dyke poet actually affects your rhythm process possibilities? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think, I mean, I've never been anybody else, so it's hard to say how to, you know, I mean, I think that, um, but I, I would say that the, at least some of the experiences. Well, it's hard. I want to talk about it in, in a not negative way because it's obvious. It's very easy to talk about the strangeness of of feeling queer and non-binary and and the sense of self. I think, but I think it contributes to self-consciousness in this way, and the, and it creates kind of a um, a performative self because you're trying to both protect yourself and then and then reveal yourself you know and so i think there's a kind of i think a lot of the the watching that i've you know been talking about already i think has has something to do with that you know um yeah i'm not i'm not sure i know you know i sort of it's hard to say because i've never been any other way you know yeah. um Though I, can, I mean, again, but I think there's a slippage too. I think when I feel gender slipping in writing, I, I, in a very most in a very organic way, I try to get on that boat. You know, it just mm -hmm. it feels, it feels um, like, and I feel like my writing sometimes has been more queer than I am. You yeah. know, because there's a, there's an ideal self, and, and there's you know there's so many opportunities too, in the text. Um. This is a question from Leia. In the making of your film, The Trip, did the narration come first or the imagery? And what's your rising sign? <laughs> <laughs> Pisces, Pisces. Um, oh, that's a really good question. I'm trying to think. I think it was really, it was kind of, I didn't, um, I wrote notes. Like I kind of designed, I mean, I kind of shot by shot, I sort of decided, you know, in a, in a very big way, where the story was going, literally where, you know, who would say what, what kinds of things they would say. Um, but um, so I guess, yeah, I guess the script, I guess the script, you know, the script did proceed the, um, it just, it, it's so funny because it's sort of, yeah, I think this, because um, though we shot silently too. So it's sort of like there was, you know, there was, there was a, you know, there was a, scenario you know there was a the design for the film and and there was a, a direction and there was an end point and i knew where we were and stuff but the the sound in fact was you know because it was super eight we taped it later so after we had done it then i could go and actually type up the script and then meet with um michael who edited the film and shot it and um and record it you know and then we you know tweaked with so i think the um literally the um the dialogue came at the end yeah. you know it's, but a kind of new in a feeling way i knew what they were saying and 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 what i know what was so interesting the collaborative part was that you know the puppets you would see puppet pathos you know and i was like whoa you know so that i could go as deep as that strange puppet face seemed to be casting the 
the mm. film into, you know? So that was interesting that the puppets, the materiality of them was more emotional than I knew. And I had to match it. Very and, funny. and, you know, do, do you think just for today, Eileen, um, do you think you're going to stay in the apartment? Um, just for today, yes. But I think I really do feel like this book, this book ended the apartment on some level. So it's sort of like, I feel very much like I, I could care less. You know what I mean? I, I feel very free, you know? Mm. So we'll just see where the story takes us. Um, I love this one person. Do you find it ironic that when you entered college, Yale was not an option for females? Wow. Um, yes, but Yale would not be an option for me on any level. Like, like the last thing I ever would have thought in this planet was that I could apply to Yale and I could have applied, but there was no way on earth I would have gotten into Yale unless they let me write an essay to show them what I was a genius, what genius I was at 17, but that's mm -hmm. right. Very funny. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the funny thing about a, a writer's career is that you walk across campuses all your life that you never would have considered going to or ever would have felt, um, you know, mm -hmm. welcomed by. So it's kind of, it's a real privilege buster, which is great. It's a great pleasure, I guess. Yeah. Well, thank you to you two both. Do you have any final words before we go? Um, Oh, no, I think only gratitude. Um, Eve, thank you so much um, for making this happen and, and your questions. And Adam, you know, love you. Thank you so much for doing this. Well, I love it. I show for it. <laughs> if you want to buy for now, you could just click the green link below us. But yeah, thank you to you to both. And this is recorded so you could watch it after and share with your friends. And I hope both of you have a good night. Cool, you too. Bye, Eve. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.